This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 25, Scotch the Snake. The torment of the bricks began again next day. Judith was seated at her dressing table in nightgown and wrapper when she heard the unmistakable thud in the room below. She had slept late that morning. The rest of the family were already at breakfast. She hurried downstairs to investigate, and as she passed the open dining room door, she called excitedly, It's begun again! and sped down the hall to the south bedroom to view the brick. She saw it near the door, where the other bricks had fallen. The door was opened, the windows raised, the fresh morning breeze swept through the room. She noticed it was a half-brick, as usual. There was a general exodus from the dining room. Judith could hear the footsteps coming down the hall. She turned eagerly as young Will, the first to reach her, demanded, Where's the brick? There! Judith pointed triumphantly. This time she had not left the spot until she had witnesses to corroborate what she had seen. Where? said Will. I don't see anything. There. There, by the door. (gasps) Her voice broke with a gasp. In the split second in which she had removed her eyes from the brick to look at Will, the thing was gone. She was not frightened. She was furiously, frantically angry. It was there a moment ago. Look outside and you'll catch the imp who snatched it away from under my very nose. Will, Jesse, and Richard's boys swarmed outdoors to search the premises, but neither the brick nor the brick thrower was in sight. Judith said, Where's Thorn? Richard said quickly. She went over to Jane's before breakfast. The rest of the family went back to their half-eaten breakfast. Richard closed and locked the outer door of the bedroom and lowered all the windows. We'll settle this business, he said. If a brick is thrown through that window now, it will have to smash the glass. And if it is sneaked out the door, it will have to go through the keyhole. Judith shivered as with a chill. She went back upstairs in silence. The others returned to their regular duties. The men went back to work, from which the breakfast bell had summoned them, the women to their household tasks. Cousin Ludie Sims arrived to spend the day, but no one mentioned that Judith had seen another brick. About an hour later, they heard her scream. Miss Anne and Cousin Ludie were in the kitchen with Millie. The black woman groaned. Oh, Lordy, she's saying things again. Miss Anne hurried to the south room, Cousin Ludie at her heels. They found Judith standing in the doorway. She still wore nothing but nightgown and wrapper. Her long braids hung over her shoulders. She was staring at a spot on the floor. Judith, you shouldn't have got out of bed, said Miss Anne. I heard a a whizzing sound and then a thump. Judith's voice sank to a whisper as she looked at the closed window. I knew what had happened, but I was afraid to come down until it was too late. Ah, you didn't see a brick, said Cousin Ludie in the tone of one who has been cheated. Judith shook her head. It was gone, but I heard the sound, a kind of whoosh, like something rushing through the air. Almost as she spoke, Judith heard the sound she was trying to describe, then the familiar thud on the floor. 
she turned sharply and saw a brick lying in the spot where the others had fallen. There had been no crash of glass. She pointed weakly to the brick. There it is. Don't you see it? Cousin Ludie's face turned the color of cream. I'm getting out. Judith's cry was like the mew of a cat. She clung to her mother-in-law as she felt herself swooning. When she opened her eyes, the brick was gone. Miss Anne opened both windows and door that she might have air. Call Richard, gasped Judith. He's already gone to the field. Ring the bell. That will call all the men from their work. Miss Anne spoke practically to still the younger woman's rising hysteria. You think I'm going crazy? I think some noise outdoors sounds to you like falling bricks, and your imagination is doing the rest. Judith seized on this eagerly. Then now is the time to catch the person who is making that noise. Ring the bell! To quiet Judith, the bell was rung. The ringing of the Timberly Bell in the middle of the morning was a signal of such ominous import that not only did it bring the Tomlinson men to the house, but all the neighbors within hearing began gathering in expectation of fire, accident, or some other natural catastrophe. When it was learned that Tomlinson's wife had again reported bricks flying, the news spread like a prairie blaze. By noon, half the countryside had assembled on the southeast lawn to watch for bricks. There was speculation as to the point from which the bricks were being thrown. No tree offered a vantage point from which that window could be bombarded. Yet all who claimed to hear bricks pass through the air, and it was remarkable how many people made this boast, insisted that they came from some point higher than the window hurtling downward toward the house. Those who claimed to have heard the wishing sound said it seemed to be above their heads. Henry Shook said, If there was a windmill about 50 yards southeast, I say a feller on top of it might hit that window. But there was no windmill southeast, as someone pointed out, nearer than Mr. Shook's own. Another interesting circumstance was that people standing close to the house began claiming to hear the thud of fallen bricks in the south room. Mitch Rucker, of Apotomatic's fame, had the temerity to venture so close to the window that he insisted he came very near being struck, in the head this time. Those who were bold enough to approach the open door reported that no bricks were to be seen inside the room but this only gave rise to the fiction that the Tomlinsons were disposing of them as soon as they fell. No one went so far as to claim actually to have seen a brick, but from time to time rumors circulated that Judith Tomlinson had seen another one. These little flurries of excitement came with maddening irregularity. There might be an interval of quiet. People would decide that nothing was happening and they might as well go home. When the woman's thin scream within the house would cause the mass hysteria without to mount wildly. People would again fancy they heard the whooshed. And no doubt they did, for half the crowd were now making the sound with their lips. It went on like that all day. Very little work was done in Timberley District that long, bright spring day. 
The excitement reached the Crossroads store, and storekeeper and customers decamped and hurried off to the big white house on the knoll. The drummer, Jenkins, happened to be in the store at the time. He carried the news to Woodridge. By mid-afternoon, half the idle citizenry of the town and some not-so-idle had joined the crowd about the house at Timberley. A covered wagon bearing the slogan California or bust turned in from the toll road on the mistaken assumption that the buggies, horses and people milling around denoted a camping site for overland travelers. It was remarkable how calmly the Tomlinson family seemed to take the annoyance of having half the countryside camped on their lawn. The work within the house went on as though this were a normal day. Some busybody coming up to the well for a drink called to Miss Anne in the dining room and asked what she did with the bricks that fell inside the house. Her retort was quoted far and wide. No bricks have fallen in the house. If they had, I'd have used them to disperse this crowd. Both the Tomlinson daughters and their husbands came over in answer to the bell summons. They remained to help their mother for Millie was too demoralized and Cousin Ludy too excited to be of any use. Judith, soon after her husband's arrival, retired to her room. There were sharp words between Richard and his wife over the ringing of the bell. Why didn't you send one of the children for me, Judith? Then we wouldn't have had the whole neighborhood swarming over here. I'm glad they've come. Now maybe we'll catch the person who's torturing me. No one's doing anything to you. Mother said the last time you saw a brick, the window was closed. Why wasn't the glass pane smashed by the brick you heard pass through it? I don't know. I'm not an expert in sleight of hand. So that's why you rang the bell. So that people would be here to see Thorne as she comes from Jane's. I believe you'd do anything, Judith, to incriminate Thorne. I believe these fits of hysteria have been staged for that purpose, just as Abigail's were. You're getting more like Abigail every day. Don't say that, cried Judith and clutched her throat. Then why do you hate Thorne, who's never done you an injury? You can ask that after what you told me yesterday? She's not to blame. The fault, if there is a fault, is mine. She's innocent, Judith. She doesn't deserve to be hounded for something she had nothing to do with. She's good. You don't know how good she is. Judith said meaningly. Perhaps I do. Suddenly, he was enlightened. It was you we heard in the passage last night. You were supposed to be in bed, and you were listening. Have you no shame, Judith? Under the circumstances, I had a right to listen. It is you, Richard, who should feel shame, offering to run away with that little baggage. Don't think I couldn't see through her sly pretense of virtue. Of course she put you off. She knew I was hearing what she said. She didn't know. Neither of us guessed you'd stoop to eavesdropping. A wife must stoop to scotch the snake that has crawled into her bed. Judith! She could feel the impact of his shocked anger, but she had said the thing that had been beating in her brain since the night he left her room. You didn't think I knew, did you, Richard? How clever of you to pick a quarrel with me so you could move downstairs to the room she would have us believe is haunted. The room no one ever enters anymore. You've been quite safe there, the two of you, haven't you, Richard? So great was his horror at this charge that he did not even think to deny that he had been sleeping in the isolated chamber. Judith, do you know what you're saying, or are you really losing your mind? You may as well admit the truth, Richard. I shall find means to prove it. 
He tried to control himself. He tried to remember that this woman was his wife, whom he had vowed to cherish and protect. For otherwise, he surely would have struck her in his rage. You are mad, Judith. Mad with jealousy, just as Abigail was. Only you are more vicious because you're smart. I shouldn't care to have your brains, Judith. Anyone capable of harboring such foul suspicions of an innocent girl would be capable of planning something equally monstrous. What do you mean? Judith's face was suddenly ashen. There was no calmliness left in her at all. He wondered how he ever could have desired her. He said softly, Have you really seen Bricks, Judith? Don't try to change the subject. Say what you mean, Richard. Don't stand there accusing me of unspeakable things. I'm not accusing you, Judith. You are. I can see it in your eyes, and it's false. Do you hear? Lies. Lies. All lies. You can prove nothing against me. Go back to your bed, Judith. You and I have talked long enough. He said quietly. Richard went out into the yard where his neighbors were fast gathering. He stood gazing toward the southeast, as was everyone else. But it was not the unseen thrower of the bricks for whom he was looking. He was watching for Thorn. She did not return to the house until mid-afternoon. Jane had asked her to mind the baby till she came back, and it was well after the noonday meal before Jane was free to leave Timberley and return to her own house. I wouldn't go home through the fields, she said as Thorn set forth. Kind-hearted Jane had noted her brother's anxiety and guessed its source, so she advised Thorn to go around by the turnpike and the lane through the grove so that she would not be seen coming from the southeast. The covered wagon was camped in a little clearing in the grove. The family from Pennsylvania were making their supper. They had got permission, they explained, when Thorne stopped to speak to them from the people at the house. Camping privileges were never refused at Timberley. Thorne laughed at the banner, California or bust. The Wayfarers were an amusing family, curiously unlike the country Jakes they appeared to be. They were something gay and dashing about them all, from father and mother down to the youngest child, a debonair happy-go-lucky bohemianism that touched a nostalgic chord. When Thorne inquired what they expected to raise in California, the father, a dapper, youngish fellow, spite of blue jeans and graying hair, winked at his wife and said, Vegetables! And the whole family laughed as though he had cracked some sort of a joke. Suddenly, Thorne cried, You show people? How'd you guess? Huh? I used to be with the show myself. After that, they were no longer strangers. The best show I've seen in many a day is going on right now up at that house yonder, said the man. They tell me some fellow with aim like a knife thrower is hurling bricks through a window no bigger than that. He spread his hands to indicate. And they say he's so far off he can't even be seen. That fellow's wasting his talent on the farm. He ought to join up with us. Out in California, performers get golden nuggets big as walnuts tossed on stage when their act makes a hit. And anything goes, even second-rate stuff. That brick thrower would panic him. Did you see any bricks go through the window? Asked Thorn. No, there's such a crowd you can't see anything. But I got close to a fellow that claimed he heard one go over his head. Said it might near hit him. 
But they tell me nobody's been struck yet. And no one has seen the brick thrower. Thorn repeated. No, little lady, seems they haven't. I stuck around a while, trying to find out. Then I got hungry and came back to the wagon. If you know who's doing it, I'd wish you'd tell him to get in touch with me. I believe I could make him a proposition that'd interest him. Thorn said. No one's doing it. There aren't any bricks. When she had gone, the mother of the migrant trope said to her husband, She was a pretty little thing, wasn't she? The man said with a knowing look. I didn't tell all I heard up there. Brick throwing ain't the only funny business, according to the talk. What kind of talk? Witches, ghosts, goblins, all sorts of queerness. And ugly tales about a half-grown girl who used to make flowers bloom in midair and pull rabbits out of hats. The woman's mouth dropped open. Do you suppose? She said she had been with a show. Poor child. The kindly woman sighed and shook her head. Ah, she'd better get back with those show people then, before these crazy farmers burn her for a witch. The man said wistfully, I sure could use her in the act. Judith sat by the window in her room, her knitting in her hands. She saw Thorn enter the house and went to the top of the stairs and called to her. Come up here, Thorn. I want to talk to you. In a minute, as soon as I get something to eat. Thorn had been so busy with Jane's baby to make herself any dinner. When she appeared in Judith's doorway, she had a slice of bread and butter in one hand and an apple, rosy as her cheeks in the other. Her hair was flying, her dress was soiled, and there was a rent in her stocking where she had climbed a fence. Never had she looked more like a heedless gypsy. Did you want something, Judith? Her mouth was so full she could barely articulate. To an onlooker, it would have seemed the height of an absurdity that this little hoyden could possibly be an object of jealousy to the carefully groomed woman plying the knitting needles. Yet the hatred in Judith's heart was so vehement that it gave her strength such as she had not felt since her ill health began. No emotion had she ever experienced, not even her passion for Richard was so exhilarating as was this violent anger against Thorn. It seemed to justify everything she had done, everything she proposed to do. It even made her forget for the moment the pain which now almost ceaselessly clutched at her throat. Are you feeling ill again, Judith? I'm feeling quite well, thank you. If there's anything I can do for you- There's something you can do for all of us, Thorn. That's what I want to talk to you about. Judith's voice was gentle, holding no threat of what was coming. What do you mean? asked Thorn. I should think it might have occurred to you without my suggestion after last night. What do you know about last night? I know all about last night. Richard has told me, as of course you would have known he'd do had you had been a little older. Men always tell their wives, Thorn. That's what girls of a certain type never seem to understand. But Thorn was bewildered. It was Richard's privilege, perhaps his duty, to repeat to his wife the conversation he had had with Thorn by the kitchen fire. Though in Thorn's code of ethics, such behavior was not only unnecessary, but extremely silly. Still, if Richard had confessed to Judith that he had asked Thorn to go away with him, then he must have also told her that Thorn had refused. Did he tell you everything, Judith? Everything. 
On both sides? On both sides. Thorne considered this a moment. Well, maybe it's better that he did. At least you know why I'm staying on here. I had decided to run away. Until I found that Richard planned to go with me. Judith lifted her eyes from the sock she was knitting. Don't lie, please. I'll grant it's revolting to think of a girl so young trying to entice a married man from his wife and children under his own mother's roof. Though, with your background, such morals are to be expected. But please, don't lie. It's quite useless. Thorne's astonishment at hearing herself thus branded as a homewrecker was so great that she stood speechless, staring at the woman who was damning her so very genteelly. I've expected something like this for a long while. I've watched you throwing yourself at Richard in a way that, well, if you hadn't been so very young, I should have ordered you out of the house. But I knew how friendless you were and how kind my husband is, even to dumb animals. We've talked it over many times. He always said that turning you out was like abandoning a homeless dog. But after last night, he realized you were not a fit person to live in the same house with his wife and mother. So he asked me to tell you that you must leave. Judith's eyes dropped to the work in her hands. Thorns remained fixed upon the woman who had just uttered this outrageous falsehood. That it was a falsehood. Thorne never doubted for a second. Her faith in Richard was unshakable. Yet Judith was Richard's wife, just as Abigail had been his wife. And Judith had succeeded to Abigail's jealousy as she had succeeded to her husband. Richard was bound until death to this woman, for there was no tolerance for divorce in the strict creed of the Tomlinsons. So long as Thorne remained at Timberley, Judith would make Richard's life a torment, as Abigail had done. I'll go, Judith, but not for the reason you asked. I don't know what Richard said to you. You must have misunderstood him, for he would never have lied about me. And it would have been a shameful lie if he had told you I asked him to go away with me. I love him far too much to let him do a thing that would bring disgrace on himself. Oh, you admit that you love him? Of course I do. I never pretended anything else. I've always loved him. I always shall. But it's not true that I tried to take him from you. It was to keep him from leaving Timberley that I promised to stay here and go on as we had before. What do you mean, go on as you had before? Nothing. I meant nothing, Judith. Don't. Please. Thorne backed away in sudden fear, for Judith had risen. The long, steel knitting needle clutched like a dagger in her hand and was coming closer and closer as Thorne retreated toward the door. Tell me what you promised to go on doing that you had done before. The terrible gasping voice hissed the words in Thorne's face while the point of the needle pressed her breast. But Thorne was too frightened to speak. All her old fear of Abigail came upon her, only now it was fear of Judith and ten times more potent. For Abigail, at her worst, had threatened only banishment. But Judith, Thorne suddenly realized, would be capable of doing an adversary to death. With a smoldered scream, she broke from Judith's clutch and fled in terror from the room, from the house, and down the long slope to the grove. 
Judith, watching from her window, saw her disappear beneath the canvas top of a covered wagon. As Richard came up to the house at dusk, he had to stop in the lane to let the wagon pass. He smiled at the ludicrous banner announcing its destination and waved farewell to the driver, the only occupant in sight. The rest of the migrant family was under cover, and as the lumbering vehicle pulled out on the turnpike, the popular ditty of the road, slightly revised, floated back on the evening breeze. I came from Pennsylvania, my banjo on my knee. I'm going to California, my true love for to see. Oh, Susanna, don't you cry for me. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project EF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at ValerieMoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hi, my name is Adam Abrams, and I'm from Vancouver, B.C., Canada. I'm the voice of old Judge Shane, Tom Stickney, and Jimmy Turner. You can find me at adamabrams.com. That's Adam, A-B-R-A-M-S, dot com. Thank you. Hi, my name is Angel Black. I am from the Central Valley here in California. And you can find me at the podcast Creepily Ever After. I will be playing the characters of Mrs. Pruitt, Nancy Turner, Pennsylvania Woman, and Martha Shook. Hi, everybody. I'm Eva Eames, or some will know me as V. Passmore. Eva is my pseudonym, and I'm an audiobook narrator and producer. I am also a voiceover talent. <laughs> but seriously... I work in a professionally built studio here in my home in Wakefield, Quebec, a little town outside of Ottawa, Ontario, the capital of Canada. Most who know me know I'm sort of a Jane of all trades. I have so much fun with so many things. <laughs> Let me see. I'm an aspiring author. I'm a painter. I'm a costumer. I love modeling and photography. A headdress and hat maker. I'm even an avid steampunk. But I think one of my biggest passions is being in the booth here with you, creating characters and bringing them alive. Hi, my name is Carol Sin. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I will be the voice of Miss Ann Tomlinson. 
You can find me at carolsen.wordpress.com. You can also find me on YouTube and Instagram as carolsen. Hi, my name is Garrett Odell from Fargo, North Dakota, and I'm the voice of Will Tomlinson. You can find me where I co-host with my friend Frankie on the ever-trending story podcast. Hi, I'm Jack Hewson. I'm from Adelaide, Australia. I play Mitch Rucker, Mr. Weatherspoon, and the Pennsylvania Man. Uh, you can find me at Jack in the Hat on Instagram um, or find my podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search up Tiger Phonics. That's T-I-G-E-R-F-O-N-I-X. And yeah, get in touch. See ya. Hello, my name is Joseph Moraney Jr. I'm the co-host of the Star Wars podcast, The Wars and More, and I voice Henry Shook. You can find me and my podcast over at thewarsandmore.com. Hi, my name is Kylie, and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup, streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com, and on my Instagram, at kmorgan, with two A's. Hello, my name is Linda Moss, and I was on my mom's podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. We did a few episodes together of London and Mum. Anyway, I did Thorn, a.k.a. Cricket, on Project DF, not known as I'm not telling the real name. (laughs) Thank you. I hope you like listening. Bye. Hi, my name is Peggy Davis, and I'm the voice of Millie. I'm a retired teacher. My husband and I just moved from California to Missouri a few weeks ago, and we're still in the process of finding a home and trying to get settled in. You can find me on Facebook as Peggy Davis Franco. Hey, everybody. My name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I am the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast Have Not Seen This. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called... The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. When the doctor had gone, Judith said to her husband, Your friends tried their best to make me believe I've been seeing supernatural manifestations. It's what might be expected from that ignorant blacksmith, but I'm surprised at a man of John Barclay's intelligence. No one could even remember seeing her after she left Jane's house. Though nearly every person in the countryside had been to Tomlinson's the day before. And what was going on here? An excited mob was milling about the house. I dare say there was plenty of talk circulating about Thorn. Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors, who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, r 57 9915, and had consulted directories for her heirs and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders, 
of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but were unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.